What do we have to offer the people in Orange? I mean, is it our great music and our great band? Was it good to sing tonight? And don't we have a great band? We could tell them that we have the best band in Orange and the best music. Pretty impressive. Uh, what about our kids and youth programs? You know, we run a gold standard of kids and youth ministry where all the needs of your families will be met. Uh, or would you say it's the new building? You know, we're going to have 440 really impressive shrubs that you have planted and people will want to see those shrubs. Uh, or would you say it's our impressive church leaders? What makes our church successful? What does our church have to offer the people in Orange? If you're a Christian here tonight, you've thought about this question as you've tried to invite friends and family along to church. I mean, Easter is in just four weeks. How are you going to convince the people that you love to come to church on Easter? If you're not a Christian here tonight, we're so glad that you're here, but you might be thinking this right now. You might be sitting here thinking, what does this unimpressive group of people in this school hall, what does this church have to offer me? Or maybe you're a teenager and your parents have just dropped you off tonight. You don't know why you're here. and You're thinking, great, what is this church going to offer me? What does our church have to offer people in Orange? Um, today we're in 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth in the first century. In chapters 1 to 4, he's been dealing with church divisions. There's been factions and arguments. And in chapter 3, he deals with their view of church and church leaders. So if you've got your Bible, grab it open, have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. I want to show you the problem that they're having or the problem he's addressing. Chapter 3, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as, spiritual, as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for when you, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. Uh, in, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul has divided all people into two groups. There is those who think the cross is foolishness and those who think it has the power to save. They are those who think uh, who live by the wisdom of the world and there are those who live by the wisdom of God. There are those who, at the end of chapter 2, are human and they follow the spirit of this world. And there are those, at the end of chapter 2, who have the spirit and can understand the things of God. And where does Paul put these Corinthians? Well, did you notice in verse 1, he says you're in the wrong group. He says brothers and sisters. So he says they're Christian. But he says, you are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Why are they immature in their faith? Verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely human beings? Uh, their approach to church and church leaders through the wisdom of the world means that they have got they have fundamentally misunderstood how God works in his church. And so while there's lots of talk about leadership in chapter 3, that's just a symptom of a bigger issue. Have a look at verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so you may become wise. Verse 21. So then no more boasting about human leaders. 
They are boasting about their human leaders because they are using the wisdom of the world to think that church is successful. To think, what can we offer people in church? And so tonight, Paul is going to give them three things that God's church offers people. That is, what can be found in God's church. And so um, we're going to go through those things. The first one is uh, the power of God. How about I pray? I haven't prayed yet. Let's pray first. Heavenly Father and gracious God, help us to read and understand your word tonight, not so that we may be smarter sinners, but so that we may walk more faithfully with you. And so help us tonight to put off the lens of human wisdom so that we may see your church from your perspective. In Jesus' name, amen. So big question, what does the church, what does our church have to offer the people in orange? First point, the power of God. Have a look at verse 5 with me. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned it to each task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Uh, First slide should come up. Paul calls the church God's field to explain his divine work in his church. So just picture you are in the church when this letter is read out. So the Apollos faction is on the left. You have T-shirts that say, four more years of Apollos. The Paul faction is on the right. You say, poo-poo Apollos, we want Paul back. But Paul, when they say, I belong to Paul and I belong to Apollos, they're actually giving human leaders the glory for God's spiritual work. So Paul says, stop treating us like factional leaders. Treat us like servants, simple servants with an assigned task by God. So Paul, when he was first in Corinth, he shared the gospel. It was like he was planting a gospel seed in people. And Apollos, he came after. He faithfully taught the Bible. It was like he was watering that seed. But it was God who gave the growth. It was God, by his Spirit, who helped them believe. As God's Word is faithfully taught, his Spirit faithfully works. Now, it's not that these leaders are irrelevant, but it's that the greater work, the spiritual work in them, could only have been done by God because it is God alone who gives the growth. And friends, this should fill us with confidence because if you're anything like me, you pray for opportunities to share your faith and then you stumble through a conversation telling people about Jesus and then you think, man, it feels like I'm getting nowhere. But tonight we're reminded in chapter 3 that it's God who changes people's hearts, it's God who changes people's lives, and it is God by his Spirit who grows his church. I mean, praise God that it's he who makes it grow. Now, if it's God's, a God alone who gives the growth, there's a bit of a question there. If it's God alone who gives the growth, why do we still elevate one human leader above the other? Or worse, why do we elevate our human leaders above God? You see, the first century Corinth prided itself on its spirituality. 
It prided itself on its sexuality. It prided itself on its wisdom. The celebrities of the day were these traveling philosophers, and they believed that the power of the speaker was found in their persuasive arguments, in their rhetoric, in their ability to uh, use human wisdom. And the Christians in Corinth, they brought these cultural assumptions into church, and so they elevated human leaders above one another. It was like they had the wisdom of the world as a pair of glasses and they used it to look at church. They elevated these human leaders above one another because they were using the wisdom of the world. And while our wisdom, the wisdom of this age, is different from first century Corinth, friends, we can still fall into the same trap. We, as 21st century Christians... Have, rugged individu- have this rugged individualism. We have this desire to be successful, to be impressive. And the, the, where that success and impressiveness originates as individualists is within us. And so we can fall into the trap of using this worldly wisdom to think about church. We can be tempted to think that church needs to be impressive. We can be tempted to think that People will be only attracted to church if it looks slick and professional. We can be tempted to think that God would only work through impressive leaders and impressive preachers. Uh, Okay, think about it this way. If I was to ask you, who is your favourite preacher at OEC? You would have an answer in your head. Now, you're too nice to tell me how you rank the preachers at OEC but you know who your favourite is. The fact that we have, we think that one preacher is more impressive than another shows that we might be more worldly than we realise, that we actually do use these cultural assumptions to think about church. And so there's a danger. There's a danger that we would elevate one leader above the other or worse that we would elevate our human leaders above God. Remember, it is God alone who gives the growth. So it's worth asking, do you trust that God is powerful enough to grow the people in our church? Do you trust that God is powerful enough to transform lives in orange? Or quite simply, do you trust God enough that he is powerful enough to save the people that you love. If it is God who gives the growth, the answer is yes. Through the gospel, God is powerful enough to do these things. You see, we water, we plant, and we water these gospel seeds in people's lives, but it's God who gives the growth. It is God who takes people from death to life, from darkness to light, from seeing the cross is foolishness, to seeing that it has the power to save. I've been reminded this over the past month. Um, In the last five years, time for a confession, in the last five years I have mowed a lawn twice. Uh, And both of those times have happened in the last four weeks. That's because in orange, grass grows really quickly. I mean, it was pretty foolish of me to buy a house with such a big backyard, but I'm out there mowing it all the time. It would be foolish for me to say that this grass in my backyard is growing because of my own strength or my own impressiveness. 
and it's foolishness for us to say that God grows his church by the impressiveness of its leaders. It is God who gives the growth, which means leaders are actually less significant than we realize. Are they irrelevant? Have a look at verse 9. Are leaders irrelevant? Paul says, for we, speaking about church leaders, for, uh, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Phew, <laughs> still got a job, not irrelevant. Right, church leaders are co-workers who work together with one another and are co-workers with God. So their effectiveness comes from their faithfulness to God's word and the work of God's spirit, which means we shouldn't give them glory. That's the trap that the Corinthians fell into. We don't give leaders glory. We thank them and we give the glory to God because it is God alone who gives the growth. So so the first thing that we have to offer the world, it's not impressive human leaders. It is the power of God to change people's lives as he grows them. The second thing we have is a message that lasts. Have a look at verse 10 with me. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one laid, which is Jesus Christ. Our next slide should come up. Paul changes images. He moves away from the work of God, God's field, to focus on our human responsibility. And Paul is not speaking about building our lives around things that matter. No, Paul is speaking about building God's church. You see, Paul is a good builder and he knows what dodgy builders look like. He's a good builder because he laid a foundation in Corinth. That is, when he was first in Corinth, he preached the message of the cross. He laid the foundation to this church of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. And Paul is concerned about people who come after him. Not because he's concerned with a legacy or he's concerned what people might think, but he knows that it is God who will judge the work of people who come after him. Have a look at verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. One of the big questions here is, what do these materials represent? I mean, does it represent a value of different ministries? You know, kids' church is gold, youth group is silver. Not at all, okay? Does it represent a quality in ministry? You know, Greg's sermons are the gold standard. Chris's sermons, they're a little bit more wooden. Not at all. The point of this list is increasing flammability. Did you pick that up? Have a look at the materials. Gold, silver, precious stones, these are things that will last in a fire. Wood, hay, straw, these will be consumed by a fire. What is the day of fire? Uh, If you've got your Bibles there, um, flick over to chapter 4. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 5 with me. Paul says this. Chapter 4, verse 5, Therefore judge nothing by the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart. We see that the fire is the day that Jesus returns and he judges the earth. 
Now, this is not, for, the, for those who trust in Jesus, this is not a fire of punishment for them, but a day of testing as their work in building God's church is tested and revealed for what it truly is. So I guess then the question is, what is that work that will last on that final day? When God's church, when God's building is set ablaze on that final day, what's the kind of work that will last? Well, if you've built with hay, you're probably going to lose your eyebrows. If you're built with gold or silver or precious stone, it will survive. If the gospel, and in particular, the message of Jesus on the cross, if that is the thing that secures us into eternity, I take it that the things that will last, the work that will survive, is work that promotes or proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ or allows other people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, the only thing that will last will be things that are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that work should point people towards it. Paul then goes on to talk about a reward. Have a look at verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I take it we get a little bit twitchy about rewards from God because we love comparisons, yeah? I mean, we want to know who gets the reward and will I get a reward? We want to know, will you get a reward and will your reward be bigger than my reward? In our first Bible reading, Jesus told a parable about servants and the reward they may receive. A slide will come up. In Luke chapter 19, he tells a parable of servants who worked for a master. Uh, The yellow text, the first one came and said, Sir, your miner, think coins, your miner has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a small matter, Take charge of 10 cities. The point is not who got the bigger reward, but those who worked were blessed because they saw the fruit of their work. One coin to 10 coins. And they receive a commendation from God. And that 10 coins turns into 10 cities. We see a similar thing in chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 So let's go back to that verse that we read before. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. The great reward, I take it, is praise from God. That is a commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant and the satisfaction of seeing our work in eternity. So I want to be clear with that. That God rewards us, not with heavenly cash or a better life here today, but the blessings of seeing the fruit of our work in eternity. That is, kids' church leaders, um, if you have built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, your reward will not be a big kids' church or kids who love you. Um, It will be seeing those kids in heaven. 
and God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Youth leaders. Um, in youth ministry, um, you may not know this, but seeing the fruit of your work, it takes a long time. And sometimes <clears throat> you need a bit of patience to see it. Um, <clears throat> but for those who have served our teenagers faithfully, for those who have built with gold and silver and precious stones, for those who have taught the gospel faithfully, their reward will not be a bigger youth group, but it will be seeing those teenagers in heaven. And God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, the point is not who gets the bigger reward or who's the most impressive leader. The point is work in such a way that your work lasts, that it lasts for all eternity. Be careful with how you build. You see, we are all, God, we are all builders in God's church. And the thing that matters is not your craftsmanship, but your materials. The thing that matters is not how impressive you are, but how faithful you are with the gospel. The only thing that lasts is this message and its impact on people's lives. Uh, my wife and I, um, about 13 years ago, we bought our first house. It was a 100-year-old worker's cottage, a renovator's dream, which was true. It was very much so. So the first day we got the keys, I ripped up all the carpet, and underneath the carpet was this Tasmanian black butt um, floorboards, absolute, like 100-year-old floorboards, six-inch wide. Some of them were nine metres long, the width of the entire house. Beautiful. So we sanded them and polished them up. They look great. Um, I then knocked down a wall to my wife's distress, but I knocked down a wall and then bought a second-hand kitchen off eBay and then kind of retrofitted that into a new kitchen. Um, and then we did the bathroom. Um, basically, I brought everything back to the brick wall and then built new walls, taught myself how to tile, tiled it, and then got a plumber in to fix the rest. I spent eight and a half years building or renovating this house, working hard, eight years of quite literally blood, sweat, and tears. And uh, a couple of years we sold, a couple of years ago, we sold the house. And you know what happened? They did a knockdown and rebuild. And they replaced it with this like McMansion cement purple blob. Oh, crushed my heart. So sad. You see, some things we build will last and some things will be destroyed. And what do we have to offer this world? It is the message of the cross because the message of the cross is the thing that will last into eternity. That is, as sinners... We do not have any right to stand before a holy and righteous God. But God, in his great love, sent his son Jesus to die for us on the cross. It was the sinless son of God dying for sinful people like you and me. When his blood was shed on the cross, he paid for our sin. And he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead, declaring to the world that sin and death had been defeated. Friends, this is the gospel message. This is the only message. This is the only thing that will last into eternity. And so the build with this message as we are building, as we are building up God's church. <clears throat> if you're not yet a Christian here tonight, we are so thankful that you're here. I guess if you're wondering, how do I last into eternity? By believing in in the death and resurrection of Jesus and repenting of your sin. 
That's the good news and the hope that he gives us. If you are a Christian here tonight, can I ask, how are you going with building in God's church? Are you being a good builder or a dodgy builder? Are you being faithful with the task that God has given you? Now, it seems quite overwhelming, you know, all this talk about building and what we need to do. And um, sometimes that fills us with um, feeling of inadequacy or um, <clears throat> I don't know how to do this or how will I build if I don't know what I'm building. Um, Paul addresses that in our last point. God gives us everything in Jesus Christ. Have a look at verse 21. Paul says, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God. Isn't it nice that he does actually like leaders? <laughs> i still got a job. Um, if God has the power to transform people's lives and has given us the message of the cross, then everything we need for this big building project, God has already given us in his son, Jesus Christ. He's given us leaders. He's given us servants. He's given us co-workers to plant and water the gospel in people's lives. He's given us fellow builders to work alongside as we teach people, as we proclaim, as we promote the gospel. You see, we don't need to destroy our lives in pursuit of the world because the world is already ours in Jesus Christ. Life is not something that needs to be achieved or earned or grasped at. Life and new life is given to us in Jesus Christ. Death is not something to be dreaded because death has been demolished in Jesus Christ. Everything we need for this big building project, God has given us in Jesus. So to go back to our sales pitch at the beginning, remember the commercial, the hypothetical, you know, um, a commercial to uh, advertise our church to Orange. What does our church have to offer Orange? The power of God to transform people's lives a message that lasts into eternity and he's already given us all these things in Jesus Christ. You see, the temptation for us is like those in Corinth, to use the wisdom of the world like lenses and to look at our church and our leaders through that, the, the wisdom of the world. And tonight Paul says, don't do that. Don't, get, don't fall into that trap. You don't need to be a successful church. You don't need to have professional programs. You don't need impressive leaders. Friends, today we need to lay the wisdom of the world at the foot of the cross. We need to put to death these false ideas of Christian success or professionalism or the impressiveness of human leaders. And I take it this here is how it applies to us. Remember, 1 Corinthians is not originally written to us. It's originally written to the church in Corinth. And so reread it 2,000 years later. And as we read it, we need to carefully ask, how does this apply to us? I mean, you might say, it's okay. Our leaders aren't impressive. Maybe I agree with you. Um, <clears throat> I think what this passage does, as we think about the wisdom of the world and our temptation to view the church through the lens of success... This passage challenges our view of success in the church. 
It challenges our view of success in the church. Just quickly, two ways. First, as we look at the things at church and we consider our human uh, church leaders and our ministries and what we do, this shows us that God never calls us to be a successful church or leaders to be impressive, but to be faithful with the task that he has assigned us, to plant those gospel seeds, to water them, and to watch God grow them, to pray and depend on God that he would grow them, to together participate in this building project of God as he grows his church, as he builds his church from now until eternity. The other thing that it challenges our is our view of success in the Christian life. What does it mean for you to be a successful Christian? Tonight, it challenges us that being a successful Christian is not about being impressive. It's not about having a certain Bible translation, knowing anything in the Greek, but that being a faithful Christian is about participating in God's building project. Uh, I'll finish with Natasha and Paddy. Uh, Natasha uh, is a very impressive friend of mine. Um, She grew up in one of Sydney's best schools. Uh, She went to film school straight out of high school, and now she's an intern working for Fox Studios, and she just celebrated her 21st birthday. Natasha, by the world standards, (laughs) she's pretty impressive, right? Like she jokes around with me, oh, the other day I saw one of the producers of Happy Feet and we had a meeting together. That's pretty impressive in my books, I don't know about you. Um, she has a friend called Patty. Patty is not very impressive, she says. She, she doesn't feel very impressive. Patty is not 21. Patty is retired and a grandmother. Patty didn't go to film school. She finished at year 12 and didn't do further study. Patty stays at home and she takes care of her husband and her grandkids. And for the last four years, Patty and Natasha have met up to read the Bible together and to pray with one another. Now, that seems in the eyes of the world very foolish. Why would you give up time to meet with someone who's either younger than you or older than you and read the Bible? Why would you sacrifice that time? It is because God grows us as we open his word with one another. God has the power to transform our lives as we do these seemingly mundane things in our Christian life. God gives us a message in his word that will last for eternity. And so doing these mundane things is like building on that good foundation of Jesus Christ. And we have confidence that God, as we do those simple and ordinary things in our Christian life, will grow us to be more like Jesus because he's given us everything we need in his son.